All right, so here's what I'm going to do. Dave in Wilkinsburg, go up to the front of the Wilkinsburg campus there on Ross, and Zeb, uh, go up to the front in Washington, and Tom, go up to the front in Robinson, and DJ, go up to the front in DeBerry. And uh, you guys are going to uh, uh, take some uh, input from uh, your groups there in just a second. Now, I'm going to ask a question. I'll take the Southfields group. I want to ask this question that I know you probably woke up thinking about this morning, no doubt, right? What are the top 10 religions in the world? Top 10 religions in the world. Okay, Dave, Zeb, uh, DJ, Tom, you guys take it in your campuses, and I'll take it here. You guys just call it out at all the campuses, right? Okay, Catholic, okay. Islam? Hinduism? What else? Buddhism. Buddhism? Okay. All right. Jehovah Witness, Mormonism. We got some of those. What else? You guys have got three so far. <laughs> Hope we're doing better at the other campuses. Christianity. How about that one? There's one. <laughs> what else? Atheism didn't make it, but that's one but didn't make it as one of the top. Judaism. Yeah, I hope it worked in the better in the other campuses than it did here. So, okay, we'll come back together and let's talk about these. The top 10 religions in the world by adherence, right? By those who participate in them. Uh, let, me, uh, let me walk through these. Number 10. Shintoism, Japanese, three million Shintos. Jain, uh, uh, Jainism is another one, four million. Uh, Jainism actually, uh, sixth century, broke off from Hinduism. Confucius, Confucianism is another one, five million. Baha'ism, five million. Sikhism, 16 million. Now we're in the top five. Judaism, 17 million. Now we get some big numbers. Buddhism, 380 million. Hinduism, 900 million. Islam, 1.5 billion. And Christianity is number one, 2.2 billion. Now let's think about this. About 29% of the world then says... I'm a Christian, or I at least adhere to the Christian religion. Let's break it down a little bit. We believe as evangelical Christians, a part of, right, the umbrella, we believe in some specific things. Evangelical Christians. You guys hear that word all the time, right? You hear it during uh, elections. Who are the evangelicals going to vote for? Here's what an evangelical Christian believes. Number one, an evangelical Christian believes the Bible to be God's Word, inerrant and inspired. The Bible is inspired by God and is without error in its original writings. An evangelical Christian believes that Jesus was fully God and fully man. An evangelical Christian believes that salvation is found only through Jesus. Not all those who say the believers, or Christians rather, say that. Evangelical Christians 
Only through Jesus, salvation. Security of salvation is another one. And then eternal life after we die in heaven with God. That's what an evangelical Christian believes. So, of the 7.5 billion people there are in the world, there is estimated to be 600 million evangelical Christians, or 8%. Only 8% hold to those things that we've just talked about. The Bible's true. It's only Jesus. I can know that I'm a Christian. I'm going to spend eternity with with God in heaven. Eight percent. Now, let's break that down. Some numbers in the United States. You guys like numbers, right? Okay. Good. We'll keep going. We'll keep going then. 325 million people in the United States, right? How many do you think would say in the United States, I'm a Christian? Again, we're not bringing it down to evangelical yet, but how many of you think would say I'm a Christian in the United States? 231 million, or 71%. But here's a a shocking statistic. Ten years ago, that number was 78.4%. Check out that dive. Now, of those 230 who say they're believers, how many of them would be evangelical Christians who hold to the Bible's true Jesus is fully God, fully man. He's the only way to God, eternal security, eternal life in heaven. How many evangelicals in the United States? 91 million, or about 25%. Man, you'd think think 91 million people would be making a pretty big impact, wouldn't you? So let's think about this. It's a question I want to ask you today. If you travel the world, only 8% of people believe what we believe. The Bible's true. Jesus is fully God, fully man. Only way to God is through Jesus. I can have eternal security. And I'm going to spend eternity in heaven with God. Does that mean 92% of people are wrong and we're right? And when you travel the world, those 9 out of 10 people you're sitting next to on the plane or in your office or in your neighborhood, can you succinctly and clearly explain to them why you believe Jesus is the only way. You said you didn't have parenting nailed down, right? Do you have that one nailed down? Jesus is the only way. I don't care if 92% don't believe that. I know for a... I stake my eternity on the fact that Jesus is the only way to God. And here's why. A lot of times we're good at the what, Right? We just are not always good at the why. And we've got to have that nailed down. That's what we're doing in the book of Hebrews. 
We have to know and believe so we can share this message of Christ. And today in chapter 2, verses 5 through 18, the whole book of Hebrews is about the supremacy of Christ, why Jesus is it. But today, the writer's going to drill down even farther on that. So let's pray and ask God for His help as we look at this passage. Father, we have to have this nailed down. We can't keep, we can't keep saying we're your children. We can't see, keep saying we believe all these things and not know why if a person asks us that your son is the only way we can have a relationship with you. So, Lord, help us to at least begin that process today so that we can know for sure and explain and share confidently the message of Jesus Christ, the only way to have a relationship with you. Lord, teach us today, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, open your Bibles to Hebrews. We're going to look today at chapter 2, verses 5 through 18. Let me give you a quick review of what we have done so far. The writer of the Hebrews is writing to a Jewish audience, people who came out of the Jewish faith. They've still got some baggage, and he's telling them, Jesus is it. It's not Jesus plus anything else. It's Jesus only. He's the only way to have a relationship with God. And to do that, the theme of his book is Jesus is supreme. He is sovereign over all. He's supreme over all. He started by telling us in verses 1 through 3 the seven excellencies of Jesus. He said he's the heir of all things. He owns all things. He's the one through whom the world was created. Don't dare leave him as a baby in a manger or some man who was a great teacher who was a victim because he died for his core values. Don't do that. He was the creator of the world. He's there in Genesis 1. He's the radiance of God's glory. You want to see what God's like? You want to see the brilliance of God? You just look at Jesus Christ. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. He's the upholder of the universe. Remember, we said that word was like a conductor. He's the one who keeps the universe together. He's the one who died for our sins on a cross. We'll drill down more on that today. And he's the one whose work on our behalf is completed. Seven excellencies. Jesus is it. Jesus is supreme. You have to know who he is. Hebrews chapter 1 through uh, 4 through 14, the writer is saying, I know that the angels are great and they're powerful in the Old Testament, and I know some of you even are tempted to worship them, but don't do that. Jesus is superior to the angels. He's better than heaven's best. And then the writer last week, he's like, it's like we're on a road trip, and we're taking this trip, and we're moving along, and we're doing these, you know, we're taking the curves, and we're going on the highways and back roads, and then every once in a while, five times in this book, he says, time out, warning sign. And we saw that last week in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Remember? Time out. I've been telling you these things. Jesus is supreme. He's greater than the angels. Now let's take a time out warning sign. We've got to refocus on who he is. We've got to get serious about our walk with Christ. We have to obey the things he's telling us to do. Now in chapter 2, verses 5 through 18, he comes back to who Jesus is, and he's going to tell us that Jesus is the founder of our salvation. Some of you in here are founders of a business or an organization. That means you had the vision for it. You had the idea for it. You took the risks. You made the sacrifices. You got the sweat equity in that thing. And you are investing in it. Well, Jesus is the founder of something much greater than any business 
represented in this room. He's the founder of our salvation. He's the founder of our relationship with the living God. So the writer's going to tell us that today. He's the founder of our salvation. He's been talking about the angels, took a quick break for a warning. Now he comes back and ties in verse 5 with the angels. Verse 5, he says, It was not for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It wasn't to angels. He's bringing us back to his flow of thought. And he's going to do something very interesting here. He's going to use a psalm to demonstrate the, the, that, that, that Jesus is supreme and that Jesus is the ruler over all and that the entire world is completely subjected to Jesus. And he uses Psalm 8 to support that. Verse 8 in Hebrews 2. It has been testified somewhere. I love that. He couldn't remember exactly where. You ever have that problem? I know it's somewhere in the New Testament. It's been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Now he's, now he's quoting Psalm 8. Or the son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels, and you've crowned him with honor, with glory and honor, and putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now this is fascinating because that verse originally spoke to the dignity of man. If you look at Psalm 8, that verse is talking about man. Remember, it starts in Psalm 8.1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You set your glory above the heavens. Here's a man looking up at the, at the stars in verse 3. When I look at the heavens and the work of your fingers and the moon and stars, all you have put in place, I can't even believe you would know who I am. What is man? Look at verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a while a little, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. Now the writer takes that and applies that to Jesus. Psalm one, Psalm 8 was about man. Psalm 8 used in Hebrews is about Jesus. And, and the writer is saying, just as man, God subjected all the earth to man, now Jesus, whom he made a little lower than the angels for a while as a man, he's subjecting the whole universe. He's subjecting everything over him. Jesus has a rule over the whole world. He has a rule over everything, things seen and things not seen. And then we would say, okay, time out. If Jesus is sovereign over all, if everything is subjected to him, then why am I reading what I'm reading in the USA Today? What am I seeing what I'm seeing on the news? Why don't he, why don't Seven out of ten people don't even recognize him as a leader of their religion. And nine out of ten don't even take him serious enough to let him be the ruler of our lives. What's up with that? Telling me he's the ruler of all? And everything's in chaos? Writer's ahead of us. Look at the last of verse 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Nothing outside of his control. But the writer admits, at present, we do not see, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. It is. Satan's still the prince of the world. Sin is still running rampant. The great deceiver is out there. Jesus, he's going to win. He's already won, right? We know the final score. 
But now the game's still going. And right now, we don't see that Jesus is in control. And that's what confuses so many people. By the way, that's where our lives should come in. We'll see in a minute. That's our responsibility. We're now the ambassadors of this great message to a world that's confused, to a broken world that goes down its broken path. We're not seeing everything subjected to Him right now. And the world sees Jesus. They get that snapshot of Jesus during that time when He was made a little lower than the angels, right? When He was born. Yeah, we'll celebrate Christmas. Yeah, He's a, he's a good teacher. But uh, that's it. And they would say Jesus was at best a martyr. Or He was a good man who stood by His values. At worst... Many would say he was crazy, thought he was God, or even worse, a deceiver who claimed to be God. As C.S. Lewis would say, right? He's either the Lord, or he's a liar, or a lunatic. He either is who he said he was, not a great teacher. He's either who he said he was. He was a great teacher, but he's more than that. He said he was God. So he's either that, or he's a liar. He knew he wasn't, and he said he was, or he's a lunatic. He thought he was. But you can't have can't have all those options. He's got to be one of those in your mind. But that's why it's so confusing to the world. And here's the contrast. Look at verse uh, 9. As believers, we see things differently. Look at verse 9. So at present, verse 8, we don't, end of verse 8, we don't, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. But we, believers, see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, we see him when he was man, namely Jesus, crowned with, here's how we see him, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death or experience death for everyone. That's why Jesus came, to experience death for us. Okay, let's just break this down here. Let's go back to that question. That's what the writer's going to argue throughout Hebrews. Why Jesus? We've got to have this down. Three things from our passage today. Number one, why Jesus? Because He's the only one who tasted death for me. He's the only one who tasted death for you. He experienced death for us. Now, how could He do that? And, and, and what difference would that make? How could, how could Jesus taste death for you and me? Well, we go back to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, right? His excellencies. He's God. He's a creator. He's the heir of all things. He holds all things together. He is God himself. That's why he can taste death on our behalf. That's why he can experience death for us. Look at verse 10, chapter 2. For it was fitting that he, from whom and by whom all things exist. The writer is never going to let us forget that. For whom and by whom all things exist. In bringing many sons to glory that He, God, should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. Now, that's an interesting three words right there at the end, right? Perfect through suffering. Because I, I, I go back to Hebrews 1 and I say, wait a second. He's already God. He's already perfect. He's already sinless. How can He be made perfect through suffering? If you're unique, right? The word unique, you, you can't be more unique. You're unique. If you're perfect, you can't be more perfect. You're perfect. So 
What does it mean that God made him perfect through suffering? Think of it this way. Jesus was God, fully God, fully man. In being God, he lost, he set down no humanity, fully human. In being human, he lost none of his deity, fully God, fully man. Born, grew up, and he taught. If that is all Jesus had done, he could not have been the founder of our salvation, right? Because it demanded that he die, he taste death, that he die on a cross for our sins. It was his suffering that made him perfect. The word perfect here doesn't mean he was like 99% perfect and now he's 100% perfect. The word perfect means that through his suffering, he, God, he qualified himself to be the founder of our salvation. Through his death, he came to do what he was sent to do. He came to die on a cross for our sins. And through his death, through his suffering, that one word describing all of his the work of Christ on the cross, through his suffering, he was perfected or he was qualified to be the founder of our salvation. That make sense? That's why he had to taste death for us, to become, to qualify himself as the founder of our salvation. Okay, so that begs another question. Well, why did he have to suffer? Why, why did he have to taste death? Okay, I get it. In his, in his doing that, he became the founder of our salvation. In his doing that, he qualified himself. Okay, I get that. But why did he have to do that? Let's back up and ask that question. Hebrews writer is going to tell us, Jesus did that to destroy the power of death itself. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. We're human, we're flesh and blood, so he partook of that as well. That, here's the reason, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is who? The devil. Now remember, the writer of Hebrews is writing to a Jewish audience, right? They know their Old Testament. And so when the writer starts talking about the devil and death, where are they going to go back to? The garden, right? Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 1 and 2, everything's good. God has given man everything he could ever want, everything he could ever need. One command, just one command. Don't eat of the tree of the middle of the Garden of Eden, or in the garden when you eat it, you're going to what? You're going to die. Genesis 3, Satan tempts Adam and Eve. They eat of the fruit. And in that moment, death enters into the world. Not just physical death. They didn't die right then, but the process of death started. The process of death we're all in. That's an encouraging thought, isn't it? The process of death we're all in. But not just physical death, spiritual death. Now they're separated from God. And eternal death. If they stay separated from God, they're going to be experienced eternally. That was brought on by the devil. That's why Jesus came, to end that. Jesus came to take care of that. Jesus came to reverse the curse of death that Satan had brought. He came to destroy the power of death. Only one person could do that. One who was fully God, fully man. One who did not have to die for his own sins, like you and I do, 
and one who was like you and me so he could die as our substitute. And that's the third thing we see here. Jesus changed God's favor, or sorry, Jesus changed God's wrath to favor. Look at verse 17. Therefore, he so, so listen to the argument of the writer. Therefore, he had to be, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to be made like us in every respect so that he might become a, faith, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, or if you have NIV, atonement for the sins of the people. Man, there's a lot in that verse. So, he had to be made like us so he could become a high priest. Remember, Jewish, Jewish audience. The Jewish audience knew the job of the high priest was to make atonement for their sin. The high priest first sacrifice made a sacrifice for his own sin, and then he went in the Holy of Holies, and he made atonement for the sins of the people. That was his job. He was a representative. But he had to do that every year. But Jesus was like a high priest in the sense that he went into the Holy of Holies, and he died for our sins one time for all time, and in doing so, he made propitiation or atonement for the sins of the people. Let's look at that word propitiation. It's a great theological word. Here's what it means. Propitiation means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end. Not partially, but to the end. And in doing so, changes God's wrath toward us and to favor. That's a pretty good deal, isn't it? Jesus died on the cross and took on God's wrath to the end. And in doing so, we don't get God's wrath. Instead, we get God's grace, His favor, if we trust in Christ. Let me show this on the screen here. So here we are. Does that look like you? Uh, and here's God's wrath. God's a just judge. He said, don't eat the tree. Don't eat of the tree. You do it, you're going to die. He's a just judge. He does not go back on his justice. It's part of one, that's his attribute. He's perfectly just. And so his wrath is on us because we're a sinner. And that's what we look like without Christ. We take on God's wrath. To the end, the eternity. The Bible's clear, that's hell. Here's what Jesus did. Here we are. We're still a sinner. And God is still just God, and His wrath is on sin. His judgment is on sin. But when we trust in Jesus, it's Jesus who came here on our behalf. Fully God, fully God and fully man. He stands in the gap for us. And what did Jesus do on the cross? He took on God's wrath for us. He intercepted God's wrath. So it never gets to us. He protects us from the wrath of God. And instead of God's wrath, what does it turn into? God's favor. That's what Jesus did for us. And only Jesus can do that. Not any other leader of any other religion. On our own, 
say, I don't have a religion. I'll just do this on my own. Well, good luck on that because you're going to take God's wrath to the end. But Jesus came. Fully God, didn't have to die for his own sin. Fully man, could die, could die as our substitute and took on God's wrath for us. Okay. What are the benefits of that? Let's just think about that real quick as we close. What are the benefits of that? Number one, because of what Jesus has done for us, we can have a personal relationship with the living God. Now, again, I know we say that so often that it kind of gets old, doesn't it? But let that soak in. We, you and me, we know our hearts, we know our minds, we know what we think. And yet through Jesus, we can have a personal relationship with the living God. That is what the world strives for. That's why there's so many religions. People are looking to something to worship, something to fill the void in their heart. Eternity, Ecclesiastes, is set in our heart. Man desires to live beyond these few years they have on earth. That's put in them because we're made in the image of God. And so we're looking for something. We're striving for something. We're trying to do something to make ourselves good enough for God. That's religion. But we believe in a relationship, don't we, with Jesus Christ. He allows us to have a personal relationship with the living God. Look at verse 2, chapter 2, verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Jesus and us all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers or generic brothers and sisters, part of the family. I don't take time, I don't have time to, to flesh this out, but just check out the three passages the writer uses to make certain that we understand we are part of the family of God and as part of the family of God, we should act like that. We should be the ones who demonstrate that. The second benefit of trusting in Christ, of knowing why Christ came and believing that, is the fear of death is gone. Look at verse 15. He came to destroy the power of death, starts in verse 14, and deliver those who through Fear of death or subject to lifelong slavery. Some people are subject to slavery because of their fear of death. They are, they are enslaved to the fear of death. Now, we come from a lot of different backgrounds, right? But we all know where we're headed. Everyone in the world, regardless of where they are, mansion or hut, starry slums with sewer running down the middle of the road, or here in the, in the, in the privileged country we live in, we are all going to die. When I was doing some research on this, I, look, I looked at there's this thing called the world population uh, map. And uh, it's these numbers that are just showing how many people are born. And then right below that, here are the people dying. Keeping count. Pretty solemn when you look at it. So we know we're going to die. That's the fear everyone has. Now, for the believer, there's still a bit of a fear there because it's unknown. But we know as a believer, here's the confidence we have, right? We know that when we die, we're going to pass from death to life. We know that the moment we close our eyes, absent from the body, here's the promise we have, absent from the body, what? Present with the Lord. 
We know that's going to happen. We don't know exactly what that will be like because we haven't experienced it yet. But we know for certain it's going to happen. Precious in the eyes of the Lord are the death of His saints. Now, death is not a pretty thing because it is Satan's. Satan brought it on. Nothing Satan does is beautiful. And if you've been with someone when they die, it is not a pretty experience. Death is ugly. That's why it's called the last enemy. I was with my dad, uh, our family was with my dad when he died. And it was not, it was not pretty. That's, that image is still in my mind. But I remember right after he died, I had to commute for a semester. Long story, but I had to commute for a semester. And I was memorizing scripture. And John 5.24 was my hope. And John 5.24 was my confidence. And John 5.24 says that when you die, you pass from death to life. So what I had seen happening in that hospital bed in Midwest City, as ugly as that was, as heartbreaking as that was, I knew that because of Jesus, my dad had passed from the, his body that had deteriorated from cancer to the very presence of God. You can know that. You can know that. It's part of the evangelical belief, right? I can know that I have a personal relationship with God. Will I be scared of death? A little because it hadn't happened to me before, right? But when I get there, I know that God's going to give me everything I need, all the strength I need to make that passage that, he's made, that He has made me to make and that Jesus has the founder of salvation. He's the one who made the path for me to walk on. Death's gone. One more. Jesus is my personal counselor in my struggle with temptation. So when I ask you to raise your hand, if you're a parent, not everyone was able to raise their hand, but if I ask you to raise your hand, have you ever been tempted to that question? Probably get 100%, right? Well, Jesus, because He was made for a little while lower than the angels, like man. He was man. Verse 18, for because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. See, I, I know my weaknesses and I know my struggles, and they dog me. And sometimes... I, I uh, am not successful. But when I'm not successful, it's because I've tried to handle it on my own. Or sometimes, I just wanted to give in. But when we're tempted, and we are those who are being tempted, we can know beyond any doubt that Jesus is going to be there, and He's going to give us everything we need to not give in to that temptation. Jesus is going to give us everything we need to not give in to that temptation. We're going to break to the other campuses if we haven't already done that. I want, to, I want us to close uh, with this thought and this hymn. We're going to sing that hymn, It Is Well, again. I want to ask two questions before, before we sing that. Uh, it is well with my soul. Beautiful hymn of the faith. <clears throat> so years ago, there was a guy here, and uh, this is many years ago when I first came, and no one knew if he was a believer. His wife didn't know if he was a believer. He'd kind of come to church and hang out. So I went and asked him, have you trusted in Christ? 
And he'd always say, it is well with my soul. Okay, great. Have you trusted in Christ? It is well with my soul. And I'd say, come on, man, have you trusted in Christ? It is well with, that's all he would ever say. So do a favor for me, all right? Someone asks you if you're a Christian, don't do the title of a hymn. Let your family know, I know for certain I've trusted in Jesus Christ. So when you get that call one day that I'm gone, if it happened quickly or if it happened over an illness, I just want you to know, you have no doubt that I'm going to be in the presence of Jesus Christ, the founder of my salvation. I have placed my faith in Him. Don't. Leave your family guessing. Secondly, can you say that? It is well with my soul because of Jesus. I know for certain, I have no doubt, I have trusted in Him alone as the only way to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't care if 92% don't believe that. I don't care if 99% don't believe that. That's their issue but for me, God has interrupted my life. He's transformed my life. I trusted in Him alone. I see the fruit of that. I see the change. I know for certain that He's changed me. I, I, cannot, I cannot take care of anyone else's soul, right? I can share the gospel with them. can't make anyone be a Christian. Only God can do that. But i got to do it with my soul. And I can know for certain. Do you know that? For certain, it is well with your soul. We're going to sing that song. Kurt is going to lead us here in South Hills. And I'm going to ask you to stand. There's a great verse. There's a one verse I love on this. I love all the verses, but there's one. The writer says, my sin, and then he just stops. My sin, and then he says, oh, man, I'm just thinking about this. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part... But the whole has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. That's propitiation. That's atonement. It's been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. We're going to sing this. Kirk's going to lead us. But when we get to that, I want you to belt it out, right? My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. It's been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I'm say, Kirk, when I get to that verse, they're going to drown you out. Let's go. Okay, let's do it. You guys stand up. Let's sing. When peace like a river attends.